Welcome to the Recent Speeches Podcast presented by BYU Speeches, featuring inspiring new devotionals and forums given each week on BYU campus. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. It's a real honor to be with you this morning. Thank you for being here. Uh, I get a chance to share with you some of my experiences that I've had here at BYU. But I have a minor concern, and that is that many of you may be anticipating a highly scientific lecture punctuated by unintelligible slides of charts and molecular structures. And, you know, I get to give those types of lectures often, but Today, instead, I'm going to talk about multiple different subjects with a minimum of scientific jargon. So, if something I'm talking about is not immediately appealing to you, I ask for you to be patient. I'll switch to something far more interesting shortly. The title of our discussion today is, It's a Dangerous Business Going Into the Laboratory. A few weeks ago, I told my research group this title, and I was really pleased that at least one of them understood the reference. And this is a reference to uh, a, a quote from the Lord of the Rings. So in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Bilbo tells his nephew Frodo, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. Now, of course, Frodo does leave his home, steps onto the road, and is swept off to these wonderful and heroic adventures. Now, the same dangers exist when one steps into a laboratory. By following the directions which simple ideas lead and simple discoveries lead, one can be swept off into all sorts of adventures. Similarly, by stepping into a classroom, one can be swept off into adventures and new and unfamiliar paths. My purpose in talking with you today is to share some of the adventures that I've been swept off to while at BYU, and to encourage you to think about the places to which you've been swept, and also to be willing to take those first steps out your door into a laboratory or a classroom or wherever it may be that will allow you to be swept off to adventures in front of you. Now, in describing these adventures, I need to first introduce fellow adventurers. And uh, my dear wife, Valerie, has taken to heart the charge to climb every mountain from the musical The Sound of Music. Consequently, as was mentioned, we've climbed most of the high peaks in Utah. And it's very fortunate that there are many high peaks in Utah, or by now we would have moved on to fording every stream. <laughs> The, la the rest of the cast of Savage Adventures is shown here. Um, and now, before getting into the adventures, I'd like to describe the scene and location in which these adventures have occurred. What a blessing it is to be here at BYU. I've been here for nearly 27 years, so I know a lot about the institution and the people here. I've come to understand the care, concern, and wisdom 
that go into the decisions that are made here, and I appreciate the selfless work of those in the administration and in staff positions. I love my professor colleagues, and I see their efforts to teach, nurture, and mentor students, and I'm so very grateful for my association with these good people. Most of all, I'm blessed to interact with the students at BYU. One of my greatest joys comes from seeing students with faith, determination, and hard work succeed in life. Now, on to just a very simple adventure. It's an early and memorable one came at BYU in teaching my very first class. I was a beginning assistant professor, and I had only helped teach a couple of very small classes while in graduate school. But now I was stepping into this huge classroom to teach 300 students organic chemistry. And of course, I was nervous. Now, where should I turn for advice and comfort? Well, my dear parents are both educators. My mother taught at Loop Public School on the Navajo Nation for 25 years, and my father was a professor at Northern Arizona University, go lumberjacks, for even longer than that. And he served as chair of his department for years. He worked with new faculty that were also learning to teach, so of course I went to him with my concerns. His response was rather blunt. Ah, don't worry about it. You'll be either really good or really bad. <laughs> wow, thanks, Dad. Believe it or not, that comment did take some pressure off, and I successfully made it through that first class. And at the end, I hoped that I was at least headed toward the really good side of my father's binary teaching scale. Over the years, I've had many pleasant and very, very few unpleasant adventures teaching students. From these experiences, I would like to think I've become a better teacher. And from these, and also from observing the teaching of other professors, I've learned some important lessons. One of those is that there is no right way to teach. There are many teaching styles that I've seen and methods that can be used effectively. However, I've learned that one of the most important aspects of teaching is establishment of proper motives for teaching. And from my experience, there are two. The first is simply a love for students, individually and collectively. And fortunately, BYU students are really easy to love. The second is a conviction that it, what is being taught is essential for the happiness, well-being, and future success of the students. Now, I'm very fortunate that I get to teach organic chemistry and chemical biology. Now, you may be saying to yourself, whoa, these topics are not essential for anything in my life. I would, of course, beg to differ. Let me try and convince you. Please think about your five senses. Sight, smell, taste, touch, and hearing. These are, of course, the ways in which we experience the world. And we'll consider a few of these. Let's start with smell. We have receptors in our nasal cavities that can stick to or associate with small molecules that we find in our environment and in our food. These molecules have to get up into the air to get into our noses. And some of these are recognized based on their chemical structures. When a molecule is recognized, the signal is sent to our brain indicating the type of molecule, and we interpret the signal as smell. 
So I get to teach students why vomit smells like vomit and why bananas smell like bananas. Similarly, we have taste buds on our tongues that associate and recognize specific molecules leading to sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and umami tastes. Unlike the molecules we smell, molecules we taste don't have to get into the air. Instead, they are in the food we eat and in the liquids we drink. I get to teach students the types of molecules that are sweet, which are bitter, which are sour, and so on. And then my students become those people that in response to someone saying, this tastes like an apple, will respond, it doesn't taste like an apple, it smells like an apple. Apple is a smell, not a taste. They may even add that apple smell comes from a collection of ester-containing molecules. Now, contrary to my promise, some heavy scientific jargon. See if you can catch any of this. Our ability to see comes from quantum mechanical phenomena involving filled and empty molecular orbitals, absorption of photons, and differences in stability of cis and trans isomers of retinaldehyde. All right, if you didn't get all of that, it's okay. But just know that I get to teach how and why our vision works, even the, and even though the process seems complex, most students are able to understand how it works. And it is hard to describe the joy that comes from seeing, pun intended, a student start to understand how their eyes work. All right, finally, most of the materials around us are made up of, or at least coated with, organic or carbon-containing molecules in the form of polymers, from the clothes we wear, to the cushions on your seats, to the finish on the floor. So if you've been keeping track, I get to teach about smell, taste, sight, and the things we touch. And my dear colleagues in our department get to teach about the same things. Now, in addition, we are kept alive through beautiful processes by which we digest food, then metabolize the breakdown products to give us molecules that are used for all sorts of important things like muscle contraction, even thinking. These are, in these are processes involving organic molecules and are considered part of chemical biology. Now, learning about these things helps us understand and appreciate the world around us and how our bodies work. And I am convinced that this understanding and appreciation adds to the joy that we can feel. Now, you may be thinking, whoa, this information sounds very complicated and difficult to understand. Turns out that most of this information is fairly simple, and in one semester I get to watch students go from almost no understanding of these concepts to where they are so excited by them that they rush to tell others about what they've learned. So next time you are washing your hands in a public setting, don't be surprised when one of my students can't help but explain to you how soap works. I hope you can understand the enjoyment that I find in teaching. 
Now, let's step out of the classroom and into the laboratory where we've been swept off into wonderful paths that I would never have dreamed I would follow when I began work as an independent scientist. My training through graduate school and postdoctoral research was in organic chemistry, but I've been swept into immunology, microbiology, development of medical devices, chemical manufacturing, and even patent law. These fields are as different as the Shire is to Gondor. That's another Lord of the Rings reference if you're keeping track. And if not, please note that these fields are very different from one another. I'd like to tell you briefly about a few of these adventures that have come because we've been swept off into these fields. And when I say we, I need to introduce additional fellow adventurers. This is a picture of my research uh, my current research group is comprised of graduate students working on master's and PhD degrees, postdoctoral researchers, they already have their PhDs, and a Fulbright fellow, technicians, and undergraduate researchers. These are truly great people and great scientists. We also collaborate with great scientists at other institutions. This slide shows institutions with which we actively collaborate and those with which we've collaborated in the past. So I'm going to be using the pronoun we a lot, but it's not the royal we. It represents a large group of talented scientists. All right. On to the adventure. Let's start with a simple question. What do bacteria look like and how can we kill them? In other words, how can the features on the outer surfaces of bacteria be used to selectively target them? Now, you may ask, why is killing bacteria important? There are multiple reasons, but one is simply a numbers game. Our bodies are made up of trillions of cells, and for every cell of you, you carry in and on you about 10 bacteria. Now, bacteria are small organisms that play important roles in our health. Most of them that we carry are in our lower gastrointestinal tract, but others are on our skin, in our mouths, and even in our lungs. Most of the time, these bacteria behave themselves and help to make us healthy and possibly even happy, believe it or not, but that's a subject for another day. But at times, these bacteria that we nurture grow where they're not supposed to be and in numbers that are far beyond those they should reach. At other times, bacteria from our local environment start growing in and on us where they shouldn't. We commonly call these processes infection, and all of us have been and are likely infected to some degree. So the bottom line is that it is important to be able to get rid of bacteria when necessary. Now, we are not defenseless against bacteria. Our bodies make molecules that can be considered antibiotics in most of our tissues. These molecules either kill bacteria or at least slow their growth. They are part of our innate immune system. Now, innate immunity is the part of the immune system that is always functioning and provides the first line of defense against bacteria, fungi, and viruses. An important part of the innate immune system is molecules called antimicrobial peptides. I know that's a big phrase, but we're going to use an acronym for it, AMP. So AMP 
is how we'll refer to antibiotics that our bodies make. Now, the best studied of these is called LL37. And to give you some idea of how important LL37 is, if you do an internet search for LL37, you will get more than 7 billion hits. That's more than if you search for Kim Kardashian. Now, your body makes the most LL37 in places in which you are likely to encounter bacteria. Your skin, your mouth, your intestines, your lungs, even the surface of your eyes. And if you didn't make LL37, your teeth would have rotted out within a few years. In some cases, we don't make enough LL37. With many injuries such as burns, LL37 is deficient and we become susceptible to infection. As, and with some diseases such as eczema, LL37 is not produced in normal amounts and so bacteria grow in the accompanying lesions. Now as an aside, let me explain how LL37 kills bacteria. Bacteria generally have minus or negative charges on their surfaces. LL37, as an AMP, has plus or positive charges. As we know, opposite charges attract, so LL37 sticks to bacteria. But that's not all. LL37 has a shape here represented by a cylinder that causes defects to form in the membranes of bacteria. Those defects are enough to kill bacteria. Should be noted that our cells have a mixture of positive and negative charges, so LL37 does not stick to them as well. As I've all mentioned, we've experienced infection to some extent. An infection may be considered a failure of the innate immune system. So the obvious question is, how can we help the innate immune system overcome potential failures? A simple answer is that we could provide artificially extra LL37. This approach has attracted some interest, but it comes with challenges. First, making LL37 for use as a medicine is very expensive. The second challenge comes from bacteria themselves. Bacteria have their own defenses against LL37. Bacteria release enzymes, which are active molecules, that destroy LL37. All right, food for thought. Bacteria in your mouth, regardless of your oral hygiene, are releasing enzymes to destroy LL37 right now. So, you make LL37, which is in your saliva, to help kill bacteria in your mouth. Bacteria in your mouth are fighting back by releasing enzymes that get rid of LL37. This is chemical warfare. So because bacteria fight back, LL37 doesn't uh, survive very long in some important arenas for fighting. One additional thought on AMPs. We're not unique in that we make LL37, but other organisms make AMPs too. In fact, all higher organisms do. They were first uh, discovered and studied well in frogs, then in insects, and then in us. And there are thousands of examples. All right, this is all background. Here's where we come into the picture and where our adventure begins. Some years ago, we looked at all of these AMPs, including LL37, 
from all of these different organisms and thought, you know, AMPs aren't that complicated. We can make smaller molecules that have the same shape as AMPs. This is one of the fun things about being a chemist. We can make pretty much anything. So, we made molecules that have the same overall shape as AMPs, except they're much smaller, easier to make, and they're not destroyed by the enzymes released by bacteria. And we called this class of molecules serogenins. We, including many collaborators, have studied the properties of serogenins for years. And we find that they do the same or similar things to bacteria as AMPs. That is, they kill bacteria quickly. But as an added bonus, they reduce inflammation around infection sites, and they accelerate healing of tissue and bones. All right, now you have serogenins. What do you do with them? How can they be used to help people? How can they augment or replace innate immune responses that may be faltering? To answer these questions, we needed help, and ultimately we needed help from experts that could develop the technology for clinical and commercial applications. All right, a quick sub-story which doesn't paint me in a very good light. Soon after our first efforts with serogenins, one of my colleagues, Professor Morris Robbins, stopped by my office and asked how research was progressing. I told him about our work with serogenins, and he asked if I had talked with the technology transfer office at BYU about patenting our work. Naively, I told him that I wanted our work to be used by anyone without worry of infringing on a patent. He informed me correctly, that if our work was not patented, no one would ever use it. He explained that for our work to be helpful to people, companies would need to raise and expend very large sums of money to develop the serogenin technology, and only if the technology was patented would companies be willing to undertake the effort. Now, BYU has a great technology transfer office, and I told the director about the serogenin technology, and he agreed to file patents to protect it. This costs money, which came in initially from the university, which owns the patents. Technology transfer offices at BYU and at other universities advertise the technologies developed at their institutions, and companies can license the technology for use and development. Multiple companies have licensed the serogenin technology from BYU, reimbursed BYU for patent costs, and have been developing the technology to help people and animals. Now, multiple different avenues of development have occurred, but I'd like to just share one example. As I described, our tissues produce AMPs or, um, like LL37 as part of innate immunity to control bacterial growth. However, if a foreign object is placed in or on us, it won't have an innate immune defense. That is, it doesn't make AMPs. Medical care often involves placing foreign objects in or on a patient. For example, with major surgery, if a patient is in, or if a patient is incapacitated, they may be placed on a ventilator, which assists and regulates breathing. The ventilator machine is attached to a tube called an endotracheal tube that extends from outside the patient's mouth to into the patient's trachea. 
As soon as this tube is placed in the patient, bacteria begin to grow on the tube. Its surface provides a near-ideal home with plenty of food and warmth. And as bacteria grow on the tube, they form communities called biofilms. And biofilm communities grow and expand, and portions are sloughed off to lead to infection elsewhere, including the lungs. Endotracheal tubes removed from patients that have been ventilated for extended periods are typically colored green or pinkish-brown by the large populations of bacteria that are growing on the tubes. These populations can be above 100 million bacteria per square centimeter. The problem with the tubes, they have no protection. They have no innate immune system. The solution, give them an innate immune system as protection. What is the best approach? Use a serogenin on endotracheal tubes as an artificial innate immune system. So, we put a serogenin in a very thin coating on endotracheal tubes to give them their very own innate immune system. Now, on the right here is an image of the stained coating on an endotracheal tube, which is thinner than a human hair. And this protects the tube for days. Shown in, in the next slide is biofilm that forms on an endotracheal tube when it's exposed to bacteria for more than a day. Over the same course of time and under the same conditions, the tube with the serogenin on the right shows no bacterial growth. And this coating has been termed serashield. To be able to use Sarashield endotracheal tubes in people, they first had to be evaluated in animals. I won't take you through all of the necessary testing. I'll only show one image. These are the ends of endotracheal tubes that were in the trachea of pigs for three days. One of these is from a normal uncoated endotracheal tube. The other is from a Sarashield endotracheal tube. Can you see a difference? which would you prefer to have in you? In human studies performed in Canada, we showed that Sarashield endotracheal tubes reduced bacterial colonization dramatically. The bars on the left show the amounts of bacteria that grow on normal uncoated endotracheal tubes, and on the right is the amount on a Sarashield endotracheal tubes. These tubes have been approved for use in multiple countries, and further studies are underway, including those necessary for approvals for use of the Sarashield endotracheal tubes in the U.S. And that's all I have to say about that. And now for something completely different. The molecules that make up the outer surfaces of bacteria are telltale signs of the presence of bacteria. That is, these molecules are unique to bacteria. And our bodies have very well-designed ways of watching for the presence of these molecules because they indicate that bacteria are present. These molecules are commonly called endotoxins, and when our bodies encounter endotoxins, figurative alarms go off, resulting in inflammation. Think about when you've had an infected injury. The redness and pain are, in part, due to the response to bacterial endotoxin. 
So not too long ago, a particular type of cell from our immune system was identified that responds to endotoxin-like molecules. The cell is called a natural killer T cell, which is a cool name for a cell. This cell type, NKT cell, plays a central role in the interface between the innate immune system and its counterpart, the adaptive immune system. I'll tell you more about the adaptive immune system in a few minutes. Because we were interested in the surfaces of bacteria and endotoxins, we became interested in NKT cells. And it turned out we were interested in NKT cells at the right time. And we were swept into a collaboration with the right people, groups of brilliant immunologists, when NKT cells gained our interest, they were only known to watch for molecules that came from marine sponges. Now, it was well recognized that these NKT cells are not in us to protect us against marine sponges. So the race was on to discover the reason that all of us have these NKT cells in us and what they're watching for. Now, I use the term race deliberately here. Some aspects of science are highly competitive. That is, there are multiple research groups working on similar projects, and the race is to be the first to make discoveries. To be competitive, we have to have good ideas and great scientists. In this race to discover why we have NKT cells, we were very fortunate to have multiple full-time researchers in my group and in my collaborators' groups that help us compete against other groups. At BYU, I've worked with many graduate students and postdoctoral researchers, and Dr. Xinglao Deng has worked on this and related projects for multiple years and made substantial contributions to work at BYU, and also within the immunology community around the world. He's one of the most talented chemists in the world, and his efforts has, have pushed us to the front of this and related races on multiple occasions. The race in this area began, us look, began with us looking for the real molecules that, that these NKT cells look for. We found them at about the same time as a prominent group in this, in this area found them. So, it was a tie. We published back-to-back -back papers describing our findings in the journal Nature. So, I tell that to you as an introduction for additional work that we did. We started working on optimizing molecules to stimulate NKT cells. We were after a way to stimulate NKT cells using only very, very small amounts of an optimized or designer synthetic molecule. And to do this, we performed structure activity studies. Let me explain how they work. Imagine you wanted to make the very best chocolate chip cookie, and to do this, you make many, many different batches of cookies, and for each new batch, you change one ingredient slightly, maybe one as an extra egg, one as an extra tablespoon of flour. After you make all of these batches, you taste them all and identify the best recipe. We do something similar with molecules called structure activity studies. We make many, many different molecules that are varied slightly, and then we test them all and find the best one. We did structure activity studies with molecules that stimulate NKT cells and found an optimized molecule that stimulates NKT cells at extremely small amounts of material. 
This molecule has been given the name ABX196. And if you had the, uh, the amount of this molecule equivalent to a medium-sized apple, you could stimulate the NKT cells to their maximum level in over one billion people. So, a small bag of apple equivalents of this molecule could dose everyone on the planet. So now, what do you do with a super potent molecule that stimulates NKT cells? It turns out that NKT cells can be very useful in fighting cancer. I won't go into all the details of how this works, it's a lot of immunology, but this molecule ABX196 was shown to be exceptional at treating cancer models in, an in animals. So ABX196 was licensed from BYU, University of Chicago, and Scripps Research Institute by a company called Abivax. This company has taken ABX196 into human clinical trials for the treatment of liver cancer, and results were recently reported. They're highly favorable, and the company is working on getting approvals for this compound to be used to treat cancer in patients in the U.S. and in Europe. All right, now for something else completely different. First, a short primer on adaptive immunity. Remember that we have innate immunity, AMPs, LL37. We also have adaptive immunity, and as the name suggests, it's able to adapt to the types of disease we may have. For example, if we get a coronavirus, innate immunity is supposed to blunt the infection, while adaptive immunity builds the tools to rid us of the virus. And it takes time for adaptive immunity to adapt to the virus, sometimes days. This is why when we get sick with a respiratory virus, we start to feel better after a few days. That's because adaptive immunity is kicked in. Adaptive immunity produces, among other things, molecules called antibodies that help inactivate viruses. And antibodies mark viruses for destruction by other parts of our immune system. The very best antibodies stick very tightly and selectively to the virus that they target. A primary purpose of vaccines is to induce our adaptive immune system to make good antibodies for a virus without us having to become infected with the virus. Adaptive immunity can also work against bacteria, but it typically doesn't work very well. Let me explain why. Bacteria have evolved subtle ways to avoid allowing the adaptive immune system to generate good antibodies against them. And I'll use an analogy of a matador to explain why. I'm not promoting bullfighting. It's only an analogy. You know how this works. In bullfighting, the matador uses a red cape. The bull charges and eventually runs at the red cape, passing under the red cape and missing the matador. In this analogy, bacteria are the matador, the red cape is a collection of molecules that bacteria produce on their surfaces. And our immune system is the misdirected bull. Our adaptive immune system attacks the molecules on the surface of the bacteria, that is the red cape, but can never really hold on. They just, it just runs right past. So bacteria, the matador, remain unscathed. 
These molecules on the surface, the red cape, are called capsular polysaccharides. I'll use CPS as the acronym, and that, so CPS equals red cape in our analogy. Working with a great group of scientists, we've found a way to get our adaptive immune system to get more focused. In essence, what we've done is to ta to, we've taught our immune system, the bull, not to focus on the entire cape, but rather only a small portion of the cape. And instead of running right through the cape, to grab onto a small portion of the cape and hold on tightly. Once this happened, friends of the bull, that is other aspects of our uh, immune system, see the bull holding onto the matador's cape, and the matador is eliminated. So let's take a closer look at a bacterium and its CPS or red cape. This is an image of a bacterium showing the CPS molecules extending from its surface. These hair-like projections are the CPS, and they're what keep our adaptive immune system from targeting bacteria well. So how can we effectively train the bull not to run through the red cape? That is, how do we get our immune system to bind to the CPS made by bacteria? Well, we do the following. Step one, we make a small part of the CPS or the red cape instead of sewing the whole thing, just a small portion. We have to do this in the laboratory and it's very challenging. Step two, we, is, we attach that small piece of the cape or CPS to a bigger molecule that looks like a virus. Step three, we add a molecule similar to ABX196 to stimulate NKT cells. Step four, we inject this combination, which is a vaccine, into mice and let their adaptive immune systems go to work. The result? Great, stunning, unprecedented antibodies that bind to the CPS of bacteria. That is, the bull quits running through the cape, holds on tighter than has ever been seen before. Now, the challenge with this approach, different types of bacteria produce different types of CPS. In other words, different matadors hold up different kinds of cape. So we have to train the adaptive immune system to hold on to these different types of CPS or CAPES. This means a lot of work and a lot of fun. In this image I'm showing, in, in this slide I'm showing you the image of an antibody that is binding to the CPS of a type of bacteria that causes pneumonia in humans. The CPS part is represented by the yellow and red tubes and the antibody is the gray part. We have learned now that we can target the CPS of any type of bacteria. That is, we can train the bull to hold on to the cape of any matador. Now, the intent of this research is to generate ways of treating bacterial infections without having to use broad-spectrum antibiotics. If a patient has an infection, the type of bacteria causing the infection can be quickly determined, and then antibodies that specifically bind to the infectious bacteria will be administered. These antibodies target only the infectious bacteria and leave the other bacteria in the patient alone. We believe that this approach is how infections will be treated in the near future. All right. 
Today, I've described some of the adventures that I've been swept off to by stepping into the laboratory or classroom. As a beginning and nervous assistant professor just starting at BYU and trained only in organic chemistry, I would have never dreamed of the opportunities I've had in chemistry, microbiology, immunology, and in drug development, and I am excited about where our work is going. And through all of these adventures, I've had the chance to work with groups of wonderful, talented, and creative people. By watching countless students here at BYU use their education to be swept into great adventures. And from my own experience, I'm convinced that our Father in Heaven has planned adventures for each of us. Through no worthiness of my own, I have felt guided and encouraged many, many times as I've been swept into new areas of inquiry. These experiences have strengthened my faith that our Father lives, is aware of us, and He gives us purpose in our lives. He loves us so much that He sent His Son to live and atone for us, so that even when our adventures don't work out the way we want, from struggling in a class to not having a grant proposal funded, to more serious challenges that we all face, our Savior provides comfort and guidance. Thank you for letting me share some of my adventures with you, and I wish the best as you're swept off into your own adventures. I'm pleased to share this message with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you. You've been listening to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including classic speeches taken from our vast audio library, as well as other BYU speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.